Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices, Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Although Willet Vest may be new to the convention pulpit, he was mightily used of God during his many decades of active ministry. He preached this sermon in 1983 at the Dayton Interchurch Holiness Convention, and he titled it, The Emphasis of Our Preaching. I know you're going to enjoy this classic sermon. two hours to say what I wanted to say. So I, I have tried uh, to be ready to preach for two hours. It's taken a long time to get ready, but uh, if the Lord will help me, I think I can get within three or four minutes of that. So uh, at least you'll find out in the end uh, if this is true. Now, since you're going to be sitting for some time, for quite some time, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to ask that you stand together for the reading of the word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. 
Then from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, But we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. And from Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. I'm going to ask Brother Wardlaw, Brother Sankey, if you'll come and lead us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, for blessings received today, we praise Thee. And in the moments that are before us, we pray Thee, Lord, that Thou will touch our minds, that we may understand, our ears that we may hear, our hearts to be receptive, and especially, Lord, our wills to be obedient to Thy truth, Touch thy servant today with the anointing from on high. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. As a text for this service this morning, I would like for us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 using the first and last parts of that verse. For the preaching of the cross is the power of God. I was not given a particular subject for this service this morning, but the theme of the convention is basic Bible truths for today. And I wish to speak with the Spirit's help to us this morning in this service concerning the emphasis of our preaching, the emphasis of our preaching. The preaching of the cross is the power of God. When I was a boy living near Central College, it was during the Second World War, airplanes from the Greenville Air Force Base used to fly over our house and over the school. They were going to an area uh, that was called Isaquina, Isaquina Lake. On this lake was a large target that had been set up at about a 45 degree angle. These bombers would sweep down low in the valley and then when they were near the target, they would drop the bombs made of steel and filled with sand. When the bombers would pass over the school, someone would go to a telephone and call Columbia and report that a certain airplane or bomber had passed. On one occasion, an officer from the Air Force came to the school and he was telling the students and those that were sighting the planes and reporting the planes, he was telling them how to tell the difference between a B-26 and a B-25 and other planes. In the course of his explanation, someone asked him the question, how would we tell if a Japanese plane came over? How would we know if a German plane came over? And the officer replied, we learn to identify only our own planes and all other planes we shoot down. I could spend wasteless time this morning in discussing the kind of preaching that we're hearing too much of that is not the true preaching of the word. But I would like to deal this morning with what does it mean to preach the cross in the second place, the tragic results if we fail to preach the cross and the results and reward of preaching the cross. For the preaching of the cross is the power of God. What does it mean for us to preach the cross? I would remind you this morning that if we were to sum up the preaching of the apostles and the emphasis of their ministry, it could be spoken in these words, we preach Christ and him crucified. They ceased not to preach and teach Christ. It was said of Saul soon after he met Christ that straightway he preached Christ 
in the synagogue. It was said of Philip when he went down to Samaria that he preached Christ unto them. And it needs to be emphasized this morning that the content of the earliest Christian preaching was not a set of ethical rules or a philosophical theory or a social program. It was not even a series of phenomenal, phenomenal events, though they did herald astounding happenings. The distinctive content of the earliest Christian preaching may be summed up in one word, and that word is Christ, preaching Christ. Would you remember that the earliest book of the New Testament, the book of James, was written about 15 years after Pentecost. Go from there to the writings of John, which came in about 85 or 90. So we have a period of from 15 to 60 years before there were books of the New Testament that were in the hands of the apostles. Finally, the canon was decided, for these men wanted to know what was the word of God. They did not want to pour out their life's blood. They did not want to die for something that was false. So what did they preach? They did not have the New Testament to preach for so many years. But we find that they preached the Old Testament and they had one theme and that theme was Jesus Christ. You find there are more scriptures concerned from Old Testament references in the book of Hebrews. These men preached Christ. Yes, we can preach about Confucius and about Socrates or the Buddha or Mohammed. But my friends, you cannot preach about Christ also, but that is not, you can preach about Christ also, but that is not the preaching of the New Testament. Preaching in the New Testament sense is as we have seen. It is not preaching about Christ, but preaching Christ himself. And so you cannot preach Confucius and Mohammed and Buddha or Socrates. Christian preaching therefore is not the bare utterance of words, no matter how skillfully they may be presented. It is the communication of the word, the delivery of a burden. It is the burden of the Lord, preaching that is sublime. New Testament preaching, true preaching, is a supernatural act. It is the transmission of a person through a person to a company of persons, and that person being conveyed is the everlasting Christ. Every sermon should be a Bethlehem, and I would remind you this morning that angels still sing and wise men still bow when Christ is born. We may wonder why men are not bowing. Could it be because there are preaching our sermon is not a Bethlehem? One church father said, were the highest heavens my pulpit and the whole host of the redeemed my audience, Jesus alone would be my text. We preach always Christ and Christ alone, true God and true man, exclaimed Martin Luther. As preachers of the gospel of the cross, let us see where our primary duty lies. It is not the dissection of dead dogmas, nor in the spinning of superfine theological speculations, nor in the organization of social groups, nor with an emphasis upon the political or the economic issues. Our, primi our primary duty lies here. We are bearers of the burden of the Lord. We are to carry Christ to the people. Oh, that there could be a recapturing of the great subject of preaching. Oh, my friend, it's not psychologists that we need today, and it's not good organizers.
If our schools would only send us preachers, send us preachers, men that know how to bring a burden, men that know how to carry a burden, men that know how to bring the everlasting Christ. That's what people need. May it never be said of us as preachers that he spoke of great things and made them small, of holy things and made them common, of God and made him of no account. We may decry the fact that it seems even among our holiness people, they're wanting more and more an entertaining type of ministry. But we could be guilty of this by not helping them to have an appetite for the word. We should preach Christ, a Christ that we know, and when we know him, we can preach him evangelically as a savior. We can preach him as an eternal being. We can preach him as a historical fact. We can preach him as a present power. This morning, there are four areas that we will deal with in preaching. Not only in this service this morning, but in every service, there are four things that stare every preacher in the face. First of all, I wanted to notice historically, it stares us in the face. We must deal with the question, we must deal with the issue of a baby in a cradle. A baby in a cradle. Yes, my brothers, you will need to assert with all emphasis that this newborn babe, that he was the everlasting God come down that this infant with no language but a cry was the eternal word that spoke the worlds out of the womb of nothing, that those tiny arms of this helpless Christ were the limbs of him who laid the timbers of the universe. And this morning it's easy for us to think of that babe of Bethlehem with the wise men there to worship him, for even in his infancy he was a true object of worship. We see him standing with delight. We see him with delight standing amidst the doctors of the law listening and they listened to his wisdom when he was just a youth. Later on we go down to John's baptism and we see him standing meek and lowly in the presence of the rugged preacher and we hear him saying, suffer to be so now for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. It thrills us to follow him up the mountainside to look with awe upon the temptation. The second Adam is met with a foe before whom the first Adam fell and was defeated and we behold the joy of the defeat of Satan and the triumph of the world's redeemer. We can trail him along the pathway by the crutches and the canes that have been cast aside by the halt and lame. We can follow him with the shouts and praises of those whom devils have been cast out. As we follow him there is no doubt that he is God manifest in the flesh. He walks like a man but he works like like God. We behold his humanity when he lay asleep in the boat and his deity when he arises and rebukes the wind and storm and the tempest sinks in silence at his command. He weeps like a man at Lazarus' tomb, but with God-like voice he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. As a man he sits hungry at the well's mouth. Like God he breaks the few loaves and takes the fishes and feeds the multitude. Like a man he goes into the mountain to pray, but like God he walks the ways of the Sea of Galilee and overtakes the disciples that have gone before him in the ship. Like a man he climbs the mountain, transfigured like God, he stands upon its crest whiter than light. What a marvelous combination of the two natures. He was human and he was divine. 
spirit begotten and virgin born. The eternal Jesus had a human mind which grew in knowledge. He had a soul of which it was said in Gethsemane, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. My friends, we should preach the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is where the attack to the, the modernists are being made on the incarnation. It was H.C. Morrison that once wrote that God created man, but he had never been a man. God had seen men toil, but he had never blistered his hands with carpenter's tools. He had seen men weep, but he had never wept. He had seen men struggling in the midst of temptation, but he had never felt the, the onslaught to the enemy or the tempter against himself. He had seen men bleed, but he had never bled. He had seen millions struggling on the crumbling verge of the grave and finally sinking into its hopeless depths, but he had never felt the cold grip of death or spread his omnipotent shoulders upon the bottom of a sepulcher. Yes, we need to realize this morning had our blessed Savior never come down into this world and taken on him the seed of Abraham, that is man's nature, had Jesus not come to our earth and lived with us here, had God not been manifest in the flesh, we could never have known the heart of the infinite Father. Surely the great need of this day is to get away from mere theological theories and human philosophies about Christ and that we get back to Christ himself. Not the Christ of men's notions of some school of theology, but the Christ that God gave to men, the Christ of the Gospels, the Christ of Bethlehem, of Nazareth, of Galilee, of Calvary, of Mount Olivet, the Christ who lived and labored and loved and forgave and died for mankind. A baby in the manger, we must preach the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In the second place, not only as preachers of the gospel will we deal with the, with the matter of a baby in a manger, but in the second place, I would have you to notice that we must deal with a man upon the cross. When we speak of the cross this morning, when we think of Calvary, we immediately have in our mind three crosses that are there. On one cross we find a man cursing in derision. We find a man looking toward that central cross and saying, if, if thou art the Christ, get yourself down, get us down from here. Here was a thief dying, dying in his sin. It was a cross of rejection. A man that was approaching Christ in the wrong way. You cannot approach Jesus Christ with an if. On the other side was another thief and he was dying, but this man was dying to sin. We might call this a cross of repentance, for he was saying, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. But when we think of Calvary, we think of the words of George Bernard, that noted Methodist preacher. My father used to preach to him up in Michigan. He wrote the song, On a Hill Far Away, Sit an Old Rugged Cross. Our attention at Calvary is focused upon that central cross. There was the God-man dying for sin. There was the cross of redemption. There he was behind him was the 33 years of an earthly life. Behind him was the denying. Behind him was those that had mocked him and ridiculed and spit on him and thrust a crown into his head. Behind him was carrying the weight of the cross. We see him hanging there upon the cross and we hear those words that come forth of his lips. Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If we're going to catch 
categorize those seven statements of the cross and say that that first statement was the most important that it ought to bring come home to us this morning who say we are followers of Jesus Christ. Father, Father, forgive them in that hour God would not look upon the death of his son. In that hour he would not allow anyone to look upon the death of his son hanging a, a, a shroud over the sun as darkness came upon the earth. Jesus Christ gave his life. Jesus Christ died. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ. We came into this service this morning carrying a Bible, carrying a hymn book under our arm, but we did not carry a lamb under our arm. I didn't see a single person as they came in this morning carry a lamb. Why is that? Because we worship here this morning, because there is one named Jesus Christ who is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God. He's the one that was slain. He's the one that was given. He's the one that poured out his life. And because of that, we can bring the word this morning. We can bring the hymns of the church. Would you allow me to take a few moments to look into the background of the matter of the Lamb? You and I would look in the 22nd chapter of the book of Genesis. There you find a record of a man by the name of Abraham. Half of his life was spent in the earth of the Chaldees. He was a southern gentleman down the lower part of the Babylonian Empire when God called him to leave his homeland. Most of us are familiar with the promise that God gave to him that he would have so many children they couldn't count them like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. God blessed him at 100 years of age. His wife was 90 when Isaac was born. But now about 24, 25 years have passed by and the Lord came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I want you to take thy son, thine only son Isaac, and I want you to take him to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice. Here we find Abraham standing there upon the mountain. Remember his boy had been around the family altar many times. Isaac looked around and he said, I see the fire and I see the wood and I see the altar and I see the knife. But oh, father, father, where is the lamb for an offering? Isaac realized there could be no completeness of worship without the lamb. No completeness of worship without the lamb. I wonder what must have gone on in the mind of Abraham that day. How can I tell my son that he's to die? How can I tell my son that he's to be the sacrifice? But in that moment, he reached out with the arm of faith and he said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. I picture Isaac as he's laid upon that altar. He's bound and no doubt a blindfold was across his eyes, standing there with every fiber of his being, shaking, standing there knowing that in just a moment like a trip hammer that that arm held with a sharp knife must go down into the skin and tendons and thorax and the heart of his son. But just in that moment before he came down with a the knife there was a voice that cried out, Abraham, Abraham! And he stopped. The voice said to him, Lay not thy hand upon thy son. I see now that you love God with all your heart. And I've often pictured what happened then. For the Bible said that he lifted up his eyes and he looked there in the thicket and he saw a ram. That is, he saw a male lamb. When he looked down, it was a very discouraging situation. When he looked down, he thought in a moment the blood of his son would be pouring upon the altar. As he looked down, it seemed a hopeless thing to think of killing his own son. 
But now he looks up and he sees the lamb. And I'd like to say to you folk this morning, I sat last evening over here, listening to Brother Vins, and I thought, my God help us. What's it going to take to awaken us with the freedoms that we enjoy? What's it going to take to shake us? But we have to be honest to say that the outlook and the downlook is a very, very dark picture this morning. But I'm glad to tell you that when you look up, there's hope and there's help. He looked up and he saw the lamb. Hallelujah. He reached into the bushes and pulled the lamb out. With one swish of the knife, he hit the juggler vein. And the lamb is staggering on his feet. And blood begins to run. He rushes over to Isaac and another swish of the knife. He said, get up, Isaac. You won't be a dime today. God has provided a lamb in your place just in time. Oh, I'm glad this morning for the lamb. I see Abraham very skillfully. Remember, he'd been making sacrifice about a century. I see him as he very carefully and very delicately cuts that lamb to pieces. He has it laid upon the altar in place. He reaches out his hand and Isaac puts the fire in his hand and he stands there and he puts it to the altar. Remember, Isaac had been around the family altar all of his life. He had never attended a worship service like this worship service, and he would never attend a worship service again. For as the wood began to burn, and the flesh began to singe, and the blood began to drip from the altar, and the smoke began to rise to the nostrils of God, he realized that there was one that had taken his place. He realized that God had provided just in time. And I'm here to tell you this morning that there was never a time like the day that I came to Moriah. I didn't hear Brother Smooth preach, but I got the tape and listened to it in, the, in my room last evening. My heart was blessed as he told about his conversion. And most everybody here this morning, you remember your Moriah. You remember the day that you stood there. You remember the day that you got a glimpse of the blood. You remember the day that you got a glimpse of the lamb. You remember the day that you found out that Jesus Christ died for you. You're in this service this morning as a sinner lost without God. This can be the greatest service you've ever attended. It can be the hour and the moment. No matter how deep you've gone, I'm glad the Lamb died to bring you out of your sin and clean you up and set you free. But I see another scene. Abraham had made it, been in a lot of worship services, but he'd never been in a worship service like this one before, nor would he ever be in a worship service like that again. I don't know whether you see a hole in this here or not, but my friend, he put his best on the altar. He put his best on the altar. He gave up everything. There was a full consecration. He stands there and he too looks at that dripping blood. He sees the burning wood. He smells the singeing flesh. He sees the smoke go to the nostrils of God. And he realizes, had God not provided that lamb, that that running blood would be the blood of Isaac. Had God not provided the lamb, that flesh singeing and burning would be the flesh of his son. No doubt he had wondered, how can I ever go back home and tell Sarah? How can I go back home? But now because the lamb had been given, he could go back home and say, wife, look, Isaac is alive. And could I say to you this morning, that's our only hope is the blood of Jesus Christ. 
That's the only hope for our children this morning. It's the blessed Lamb of God. But I'm glad that he was given. He was given as the atonement. We should preach the incarnation. We are to preach the atonement of Jesus Christ. Yes, men have died for other causes. Jesus was not the first man to die, nor the last man to die for a just cause. If you would allow me to make a personal illustration here this morning, it was during the Second World War. Bombers were flying one way into Tokyo, 1,200 miles, and then coming back after dropping their bombs. Many of these bombers were falling into the ocean, some that would be... Uh, damaged by aircraft fire could not make it back and they were wondering what they could do there was a little piece of coral rock four square miles to be exact sitting 600 miles southwest of Tokyo Japan we know it today as a little place called Iwo Jima the Japanese had built two complete airfields and they had the third field partially finished and the Americans thought if we could take Iwo Jima, then we would be able to have a halfway point for our planes and for our men. President Roosevelt first decided that he would go in and drop gas bombs and either kill or put to sleep all the Japanese that were there. But he decided against that because of world opinion against the use of such gas. So it was decided that a special marine division would be prepared for Iwo Jima and later on go in to take the occupation of Japan when the war was over. But they also realized that they dare not send in unexperienced battle soldiers. They needed some men that had been in the battle. So they reached down further in the South Pacific. There they found the 3rd and 4th Marine Divisions. They found those men that had fought and those men that had, had borne up under the heat of the battle. In the 4th Marine Division, uh, in the 28th Regiment, there was a blonde-headed boy with two black-headed sisters two blonde-headed, two red-headed sisters and two blonde-headed sisters and a black-headed sister and a mother and daddy down in Alabama, along with thousands of other fellows. In fact, 50,000 men were brought in ships to the edge of Iwo Jima. They said, we probably won't need you fellows. It'll probably be over in about a week or two weeks at the most. We won't need you fellows. But when those Marines went into the base of Mount Sarabacha, on that first day, 1,000 Marines poured out their life on the shores of Iwo Jima. Finally, after much intense fighting, that was on the 18th day of February, 1945. After much intense fighting, Mount Sarabacha was taken. After a while, the first airfield was taken, and now it's D plus nine. Already, lives are being saved by planes that are able to land on the airstrip. They have taken the second airstrip, and they clear the runway and the planes come in and take out the wounded and dying. But then the Japanese that were holed down inside, 22,000 of them that were down inside like ants in a honeycomb begin to pour up out of the earth. And hardly had they taken the landing field, the airstrip, until the Japanese came and took it again. It was in the heat of this battle, D plus nine, on the 28th day of February, that that boy, that 19-year-old boy, he was fighting hand to hand when suddenly Archie said, Jake, watch out. But he didn't see in time and a Japanese threw a hand grenade and it caught him right below the head and he fell dying into the hands of Archie. 
Before the battle was over, after more than a month, 6,000 Americans poured out their life's blood on that little coral rock in the South Pacific. 19,000 Japanese died. Yes, across not only Iwo Jima, but in the South Pacific, in the high parts of the Philippine Islands and other places and across Europe, there have been those men that have left a, a blood trail, those men that have given their lives, and we are here this morning enjoying the freedom of this land, having never an armed enemy come. And I would remind you this morning that it wasn't a bunch of pacifists that took the hill at Mount Sarabacha. It wasn't a bunch of flag haters and flag burners and those that won't salute the flag. That's not the kind of people, but it was soldiers, men that squared their shoulders. And we're here this morning enjoying the freedom that we have. We can sit in this auditorium this morning because there are men that poured out their life's blood. Some years ago, one of my son-in-laws, I'd rather say my wife's son-in-law, but one of my son-in-laws somehow got involved in some of this stupid thinking. He didn't know whether he could salute the American flag or not, and he's an American citizen, I think. I looked at him eyeball to eyeball, and I said, now, son, I love you. But if you feel like you cannot salute the American flag, and you are so yellow and so low down, or either so misguided, would you please do me the favor of not letting anybody in all this world know that you're my son-in-law? Amen. I'm still glad to see old glory wave. I'm still glad that I'm an American this morning. We're a blessed people. Take somebody like Georgie Vins and others to come here and tell us how blessed we are. We don't seem to know it. Yes, there have been men that have poured out their life's blood for a good cause. Even in Christ's day, it was a very common sight to see the blood-drenched blood-drenched corpse hanging blackened by the sun upon a couple of beams by the common highway. People would hardly look up just another criminal dying for his sin. But what about the death of Christ? What makes his death so different? It all clearly depends upon who you think he was and what you think he was dying for. There are various views. One says that he was a martyr dying for his principles and that his cross is to be placed in the same category as the hemlock that poisoned Socrates or the bullet that cut short the life of Lincoln or Kennedy. Another says that he was a patriot dying for his country and his death deserves to be ranked along with those of Judas Maccabees and Joan of Arc. But we must go beyond that, for Jesus Christ was the Savior dying for the sin of the world. Three years ago this Easter, we were traveling north up in the Philippines, and we noticed there were procession after procession, people following someone they were carrying a wooden cross. I noticed also men with their backs bare, a hood over their head. They had a piece of leather with metal on the end, and they would beat their backs as they went along. Blood was running down their backs. I did not see it, but I understand that some of the men were actually nailed to the cross for a short period of time. What they were doing was only make-believe. What they were doing was only make-believe. For Jesus Christ dying was not a make-believe. But it's true because of sin that somebody desperately needed to die for this whole world. There was something radically wrong with it. You can try to account for the fact of sin as you like. You can call it theological fiction. You can call it a pathological state liberally fomented in the public mind. 
mind by the salaried representatives of religion with a view to implementing their own ends and securing their own interests. You can call sin, as does Robert H. Schuller, and I quote, any human condition or act that robs God of glory by stripping one of his children of their right to divine dignity. Sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. But this preacher from the glass house, now I've seen pictures of that house and it's all glass. And it's hard for me to imagine that they've got so much glass and some of it's not cracked. Well, I don't know about the glass, but the preacher is cracked. For sin is more than a dignity. Losing our dignity or losing our self-esteem. And that's why we've got so much sin in America today. They're listening to fellas like that that are saying that sin is not really sin. It's sort of losing your self-esteem and losing your dignity. But sin is against God. A willful transgression. You can call it an evolutionary legacy. You can call it the moral hangover from alleged animal ancestry. You can call it good in the making. You can call it the growing pains of a race or what you will. But one thing you cannot deny, that sin has made havoc of God's fair earth. Scripture declares that this havoc is so dreadful that it's so great that even an omnipotent God could only save the world by dying for it. Oh, men, brothers, could I say this morning, we should preach the atonement of Jesus Christ. Preach the atonement of Jesus Christ. He died for our justification. He suffered and died for our sanctification. Not only did he die that the acts of our sin might be forgiven, but that the nature of sin could be cleansed. And it matters very little that that preacher who has been on a safari so long, you ever hear him? Taking a safari through the Bible. I believe he's been on that safari so long. I believe he's rode that old humpback camel so long that he's had a sunstroke. He's just been out there so long. Or either his camel has stepped in a pothole. He doesn't seem to know. And he will say that there's no deliverance from sin, but all of those like him don't have enough sense to see that Jesus Christ died as the minimum of his death was to save and cleanse men from all sin. My friends, I'm not talking about water baptism or church membership this morning, but I'm talking about a salvation. How much more salvation for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh. How much more, how much more the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Preach the atonement of Jesus Christ as a complete deliverance from all sin. Not only do we see a baby in a manger, not only do we see a man upon the cross, but the third thought I'd like to bring this morning is this. We must deal with the matter of a body in a tomb. In the book of Matthew chapter 27 verses 66, 62 through 66, you find the record of how the chief priest came to Pilate asking him to make sure that the body of Christ stayed in the tomb. They used stone and they used a seal and they used soldiers but the body did not stay in the tomb. After they found the body was not in the tomb, there were many theories that came about really what happened to the body. 
Some say that Christ did not really die on the cross at all, that he only swooned and that when his body was deposited in the grave in Joseph's garden, the cool atmosphere of the cabin and the pungent perfumes and smell of the spices stung him back to consciousness and that eventually he was able to muster up enough, enough strength and struggle to his feet, strip off the encumbering shroud and stagger forth into the light of dawn. However, I would remind you this morning that when you consider the fact that a pale, bloodless Christ in urgent need of hospital treatment, dragging himself slowly and painfully from the sepulcher would hardly have likely persuaded his followers as Christ really did that he was alive forevermore. We see how false this is. The resurrection was a reality. It turned cowards into heroes. It turned those with great terror into flaming courage and it sent them forth to face swords and death proclaiming that Jesus Christ was alive. There was a message found by those at Emmaus, a message that was so wonderful and so glorious. In that same hour, they rushed back to Jerusalem to proclaim his resurrection, a body in a tomb. Yet in only a few hours, Christ was risen in power and great glory. The resurrection of Christ, the distinctive difference between the Christian religion and all other religions. I'm glad that he's alive this morning. We are here as a testimony that Jesus Christ is alive forevermore. He's not dead. He's not still in the grave, but he lives. Oh, preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only must we deal with a baby in the manger and a man on the cross and a body in the tomb, but I would suggest to you that in our preaching, if we're going to preach the cross, if we're going to preach Christ, then we must look at a king on his throne. Jesus Christ was proclaimed king at the beginning and at the end of his earthly ministry. The wise men said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? At his death, Pilate nailed a sign in three languages over his head. It was written in Hebrew that represented religion. It was written in Latin, which represented law. It was, represent, it was written in Greek, which represented learning. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Twice in the interim, Christ was offered a crown by Satan during the time of the temptation and once with the people. But I would remind you that if Christ was in his royalty, he was in his royalty so splendid here on earth. How much more splendid with all the restrictions of earth laid aside. We read that he ascended into heaven and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, a king on a throne. Christ is not struggling to the seat of power. He is already on the throne. Take heart, my friends, this morning. The God-man is on the throne and all is under his control. Preach him as the victorious king. Preach him as the king on the throne. Preach him as one that's coming again. I had a dear friend of mine say some years ago, Brother Vest, do you have your place up in the mountains? I said, no, I don't. What I want a place in the mountains for? Well, he said, you know, the end time's coming. We need to get up in the mountains. I'm reminded of what my boy said some years ago when he was a first grader at Hope Sound. Six years of age, he came home one day and John said to his mother, Mother, are we storing up food for the Christ? Now, that's quite a question for a first grader to ask. And my wife said, uh, why no, John, why do you ask? He said, well, mother, somebody said at school the Christ was coming and 
we needed to store up food for the crash. And my wife said, no, John, I guess we're not storing up food for the crash. He looked up at his mother and then he said, oh, well. He said, I guess we'll just have to trust the Lord. <laughs> Amen. Now, my friends, dear friend of mine that's here this morning asked me the other day, he said something like this, Brother Vass, have you, have you thought about the Lord coming back before the end of the century or something? And I, I felt almost disrespectful when I said no. Now, he might come back before the end of the century. He might come back in 84, 86. I don't know. He might come back today. But I, I don't want to try to sound disrespectful at all and trust in myself. But I believe if I'm packed up and ready to go, when does it matter when he comes back? The world's wringing their hands. They're disturbed about what, and they ought to be disturbed. But I believe that we can be calm in the midst of all the adversity that's having. And I believe that we'll be ready on the tiptoe of expectancy. He might come back before this convention's over, but we're ready to meet him and we're ready to go. He's a king of the throne. He's coming again. Oh, dear men, what a great gospel we have to preach. A baby in a manger, the incarnation. The man on a cross, the atonement of Jesus Christ. A body in a tomb, the resurrection. A king on the throne is coming again. When you look at the book of Acts, the apostles preached Christ. They preached his past works, his present ministry, and his future coming. The kingdom of God is without doubt the central theme running through the synoptic gospels. But when we come to the Acts of the Apostles, the message preached by the apostles is centered in Christ. And there is no change of the message, but only a change in terminology. But the content of the gospel of Christ remain unchanged. The gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of Christ. In the Acts, almost the same number of verses are used concerning his life and his death and his resurrection. But what is the tragic result if we fail to preach Jesus Christ? If we do not lift him up and magnify him? Paul wrote here in verse 17, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. What he's saying here is don't empty the cross of Christ. Don't empty the cross of Christ. And he says here, don't empty the cross of Christ by trusting in human wisdom. And when we get to where we are so great, and we've got to have such great titles to our names and we've got to have such great prestige then we are taking Christ from the cross we are trusting in human wisdom but the foolishness of God is wiser than men preaching without Christ at the center is like the name Exxon E-X-X-O-N some years ago they wanted a name for an oil company they used 55 computers and they came up with the name Exxon and the word Exxon says nothing and means nothing. Says nothing and means nothing. Could I say this morning facetiously that I know of a lot of preaching that leaves a big guff. And I hear a lot of preaching that is nothing in the world but a shell. And uh, preaching that trust only in human wisdom is nothing but Exxon. I don't know whether you can go through all the oil companies or not. But my friends, when we preach anything other than Jesus Christ at the center, in essence, we're saying nothing and meaning nothing. If somehow we could get back to the central theme of the Bible, somehow we could realize anew as our brother told us the other evening, as there has been an emphasis for weeks and months, God has laid this upon my heart. Oh, to preach Christ. Oh, to lift him up, to exalt him, to magnify 
must don't take Christ down from the cross by causing divisions. It would do all of us good to get the book entitled The Day That Hell Was in Session, written by Jeremiah Denton, senator from Alabama. He was a prisoner in Vietnam. And somewhat along the line of what Brother Smool told about, he told about the fact that Catholics and Jews and Protestants were all together. But he said, no time did we ever argue religion. No time did we ever down one another. Those men were grasping for life itself. Catholics were killed and Jews were killed and Protestants were killed. We go to the 12th chapter, verse 26, and it tells us that when one suffer, all suffer. I walked into a chicken house one day and somebody hit me in the back of the head. And I turned around to see who hit me. And I realized I'd stepped on a hole. I hit myself in the back of the head. And that's exactly what we do when we can't get along with one another. Don't take Christ from the cross. Don't empty Christ from the cross by building on another foundation. We have an example of this in the church of Galatia. Paul had poured out his life to help these folk, but there were false teachers that came in their midst, and false teachers are always found in the church. They're not out trying to reach souls. They're in the church to cause problems. Paul clearly shows in the book of Galatians that this is the cornerstone of Christian faith. It's the book of liberation, of spiritual emancipation. It was the battle cry of the Reformation. And the purpose of the book was to offer a defense of the gospel at a time when Judaizers were defending their position that man's salvation was, de was secured by faith plus works. But Galatians says, no, it is faith, not works. When Paul brought this light showing them that they were saved by believing and not by achieving. And after his greeting, Paul comes right to the point. He said, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel beside salvation by faith. Let him be accursed. The church at Galatia had backslid into legalism. Legalism, though not a term in the Bible, it means law-like. Legalism is basically conformity to a standard for the purpose of exalting self. Legalistic salvation says that in order for one to be saved and sanctified, to be right with God, he must do something. He must add to the work of Christ so that God will be pleased with his good works. You say, but what about repentance? Oh, my friends, repentance proceeds faith. But in one essence, we might say that it takes a measure of faith to repent. And I contend that if people will repent real good, they'll be able to believe real good how we need to emphasize repentance. But I must be honest to tell you that you can repent and repent and repent. Repentance does not save you. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved by faith in the finished work of Calvary. And we are here this morning because one day there was a man by the name of Martin Luther climbing up that holy stairway to kiss the Pope's big toe. But somewhere before he ever got to his big old toe, he realized that we are saved not by kissing anybody's big toe or little toe or middle toe, but we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. This is a truth that broke in upon Wesley. Though he was full of good works and came out of the state of Georgia and made a mess of things in one respect because
Jones. Uh, he couldn't get along too well with people. I think it was on the way back they had an awakening, but later on at Alder's Gate, he said that his heart was strangely warm. I believe this morning that we need a new emphasis upon preaching justification by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said if we preach any other gospel, if we for one moment think that we are saved by what we do, we fall into the error that came into the church at Galatia. Paul said, let them be accursed if they teach any other thing. And I believe that we do need a new emphasis on the new birth and what it will do when we treat people. It bothers me when I hear preachers preach and I would have to testify that I've been guilty. But I thought, why would we have to threaten people to seek entire sanctification when people have to be threatened to seek entire sanctification? I believe it is an open confession that uh, they are not acknowledging their need or we haven't made them understand or they don't understand or either they're rejecting the word. For When we are saved, my friend, we do not step into a little closet two feet one way and three feet another. I hear people preach that somehow we're not even saved until we're sanctified. And they act like that when we get saved, when we get justified, when we're regenerated, when we're adopted, we step into a little bitty room we're just barely in and we can hardly move. Let me tell all you folk this morning that that evening when I gave my heart to Jesus Christ, that day when I saw my Savior hanging upon Calvary, when he came down and said, you're forgiven with advance, when he came down and said, I washed your sin away, sins away. I want to tell you I wasn't looking in water in a thimble. I wasn't looking in water in a kitchen sink. I stepped out in the great ocean of God's love and mercy and grace. I was born from above. I became a new creature. I became a new person in Christ Jesus. I've never gotten over it and I never will get over it. You cannot be saved any more saved than when you're justified. You're just as much saved in justification as you're saved in entire sanctification. And it is false. It is false to infer that when people are justified, they're just barely in. My friend, when you're justified, your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. You are a new creature. You are a new person. You are ready to meet God. I think sometimes what we do theologically it's the way the Taiwanese cut up chicken. Some years ago, I was in Taiwan, and they brought out a great big old pot of food, and everybody used these spoons that looked like a pelican's beak, and we all dipped out of the same bowl, the same pot. And I noticed some funny-looking things floating around in there, but I closed my eyes and dipped in. And they said, now, Brother Vess, you're not used to eating Chinese food, so be very careful for slivers of bone from the chicken. You know, when we cut up a chicken, we find where the leg bone is and the hip bone. But when they cut up a chicken, they just lay it down and take something like a machete and about every inch, they just cut it in two and throw it in a pot and cook it. And so you've got these pieces of chicken bone that you have to be very careful of. When did we ever get the thought that there is any holiness apart from Jesus Christ? We talk about the Holy Ghost. Why is the Holy Ghost given? For one purpose, there are many purposes, but the main purpose that the Holy Ghost is given is to glorify Jesus Christ. The 
closest you can ever be to the Lord, I think Brother Bob French said this some years ago, the closest that you can be to the Lord is to walk in all the light that he gives you. There'll be very little difference in the outward life of the regenerated and the entirely sanctified. And I believe if we would preach a new birth and let folk really see what it does for them, that they'll be so hungry for the fullness of God, you won't have to threaten them, but just say, here's the table, come on. <laughs> there are probably several farmers here this morning and they could teach us a lot of lessons. Sometimes we preachers think we know it, but some of those men, my father used to say that some farmers are born with more sense than some preachers get going to school all their life. But my boy raises some calves, and some time ago we hadn't been down to the pasture, and the Bermuda grass had gotten very dry, and the calves were getting real hungry. I, I realized how hungry they were when I looked, and one of them was, uh, one of the little calves was sucking the ear of the other one. I, I mean, I knew they was getting real hungry. And I knew that something had to be done. And I went to town and bought a bag of sweet feed. It's got molasses in it. Now you folk up here don't know what sorghum is, but that is a real high rate kind of molasses. And uh, I, it had, had some sorghum mixed in it. It's real sweet like, and it had corn and wheat. And the calf wouldn't come in at first. They'd been fighting and carrying on and kicking and biting. They just couldn't get along too well. And so I put a little of that sweet feed in the trough and finally got the little calf. I knew if I could get him in and just get one little taste of it, he'd be ruined. And pretty soon he came in and got a little whiff of it and got a taste of it. And pretty soon he stopped his stomping and his tail began to wag. Now, you can't take this literally, but I believe it stopped some wagging tongues. Amen. <laughs> And before long, I couldn't get the other one in, but he came in. And you know, we've got a white automobile, and now anytime they see a white automobile coming, they just take off for the barn because they think they're going to get some sweet feed. Well, there are two roads on each side of the pasture. Those cows about run themselves to death running after white cars because they think they're going to get fed every time a white car comes by. What is it? They're spoiled. And dear preachers, and I, I, I'm, I'm one this morning that stands in need of help. I'm thoroughly convinced if we would help our people to see what real Bible regeneration is, that we wouldn't have to threaten them. We wouldn't have to shake them over hell to get them to seek holiness. Oh, one of the proofs that you are in Christ is your desire for all the fullness of God. And we have, we have those that are advocating today that when a person is born again, they receive the spirit of Christ and therefore there's no more fullness of the spirit and holiness is not needed or obtained as a second definite works of grace. My friend, there is more to it than being regenerated. There is more work of the spirit yet. And there are those that have meddled on what happened at Pentecost. I just say to those people, can you not read? It says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And I'm not near as concerned about what happened to the disciples at Pentecost. I'm concerned about what's happened to us. Do we have the fullness of the Spirit? Do we have the blessing? Do we know this morning the fullness of his love? Amen. It 
does not minimize our belief in entire sanctification one bit to let folk know that when they are saved, they are saved. Again, I say there's no holiness apart from Jesus Christ. Preach Christ and you'll find no finer way to get the people to get the people to follow the principles of Christian ethics. It was Thomas Chalmers that said in his farewell discourse to his flock at Kilmeny, he declared, you have at least taught me that to preach Christ is the only effective way of preaching morality and all of its branches. David Brainerd said concerning his ministry among the American Indians, I find that my Indians begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified even in a trifle when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and him crucified. I wonder what would happen if we'd lay our Tommy Hawk aside instead of braining our people and bleeding our people. Jesus said, feed my flock. He did not say, bleed my flock. We'd begin to preach the doctrine of Christ. We'd begin to preach a babe in a cradle and a man on a cross and a body in a tomb and a king on a throne. We would find out what Brainerd said, that when the doctrine of Christ is preached, when we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, this is what helps them to put on the life of holiness and living to please God. Talk they of morality, O thou bleeding lamb. The true morality is love of thee. The salvation of orthodoxy is a burning heart. In the last place, the results and reward of preaching the cross. The reward of preaching Christ and preaching the cross. What are our churches looking for today? I believe that our people are thirsty for the divine. I had one pastor that came to me. He said, Brother Vess, I'm tired of the superstars. I'm tired of the superstars. And one may have a good education, and he may speak of the cross, of the resurrection, and Pentecost. But if these words, these words themselves do not possess some magic potency, they are the words themselves have no power within them. But you will find in the New Testament that the chief stress is always laid not on the events themselves, momentous as they were, but rather on the personality behind the events. The primitive Christian preacher did not proclaim the crucifixion of Christ. They preached Christ and him crucified. They did not just deal with the resurrection of Jesus. They dwelt adoringly on Jesus and the resurrection. They did not discuss the phenomena of Pentecost. They spoke of Christ by his spirit indwelling the heart. Always the main emphasis was on the personality. Finally, what is the indispensable prerequisite to Christian preaching? Is it our personality? No. Is it some mysticism? No. Is it our college training? No. Is it the possession of some theological knowledge? No. Then what is it? I think Brother Wardlaw told us ably yesterday what it was. If you look into the New Testament and you find that dazzling passage where having risen triumphant from the tomb, the master appears to his disciples and talks to them about what they are to do for him in the future. A large part of their service is to consist of preaching, yet they are not to begin right then. They are to wait a while. They are to tarry. Why wait? Here, why wait? Here are men of outstanding personality, but they are not to preach. All have spent three years in Jesus College, the greatest divinity school, yet they are not to preach. John stood beneath the cross. He and Peter had stared into the empty sepulchre, yet they were not to preach. 
why there's only one answer. They have not yet been filled with the Holy Ghost. There is a Pentecostal filling of the Spirit that they must have if they are going to preach Christ. Let us look again at that meeting there where they were gathered in that upper room frightened like sheep. They were meeting, scared behind doors were barred when suddenly Jesus appeared. He appeared in their midst and after getting the over the first impact of his meeting, they said to him, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Jesus said, ye shall. All that I want to do now that I'm risen from the dead, you shall accomplish when you receive the dynamic from on high. This is what you're to tarry for. This will be your endowment. This will be your enabling gift. The real power in preaching stems from one thing and one thing only. That's the mighty rushing wind that struck the disciples in the upper room. This is the indispensable prerequisite to Christian preaching. I prepared this message long before I knew that Brother Wardlaw was going to refer to Brother Glenn Griffith. But would you let me close with a short illustration? I remember a few years ago when I was at one of the first Hope Sound camps. It was an afternoon service during the week. We hadn't been married very long. We drove the 125 miles down to the camp. And I'd never seen Brother Griffith before, but I didn't know when I'd ever witnessed a man preaching with such power and such anointing. The platform was only one step higher than the auditorium. 50 people were in the audience. Asleep on the front seat was a little baby, year, year and a half old, sound asleep, wrapped in a blanket. Brother Griffith came down from the platform and in order to make his point, he suddenly jumped off the floor with both feet and jumped right on top of that baby. When he realized what he had done, he dropped to his knees and laid his hand upon that baby and said, Lord, you know I didn't mean to do it. The baby didn't even wake up or cry. There was so much power. Here was a man, not so well educated, but somewhere he had found the real answer, the real need in a preaching and could I say this this morning, the last few years it's been my privilege to observe some of the keenest minds in the wholeness movement, to see more men going into doctrinal programs and higher education from conservative wholeness backgrounds than ever before. And it's true that we need men that know the scriptures and can decipher as near as possible the, to what the Bible really says, but this is not the final answer. We need scholarship but we need anointed, baptized scholarship. And could I plead for patience this morning? Patience with those young men that want to preach Christ in his fullness. Men that honestly want to know what the Bible says. Men that know that the Holy Ghost is given to glorify Jesus. Men that are honest and sincere. Don't cut them off. Pray for them. Urge them to stay on the right track. Then could I plead with these men that are coming out of holiness schools and men that are going into higher education, don't throw the baby away with the bathwater. Tis true the conservative people and the conservative movement that we have needs. And I believe Brother Smool and other leaders would acknowledge that we are people that have needs. But I just tell you this this morning, it's going to take more than your learning to qualify you for the preaching of the cross. And I thought, you know, if men are going to trust in just a piece of paper, Brother Heron would do the graduates well to say, come on, fellas, the graduation march is going down to the ocean. Throw your paper in the water. 
Brother Miller could say, come on, fellows, let's go down to the Ohio River and throw it all into the water. And not to be so hard on those, there are a lot of us as preachers that probably ought to take some of our old stale salt barrel sermons and throw that into the water if it didn't kill the fish and realize that if we're going to preach the gospel as we ought to preach it, that we need Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm beginning to wonder if General Booth wasn't right when he said, it seems a shame that men have to spend three years in Bible training. If only I could take them down to hell and let them walk for 45 minutes and see the lost and hear the cry of the damned and the doomed. This is all that would be needed to reach a lost world. What we need, men, and I'm preaching to this poor preacher here this morning, what we need above all else is a burning heart, a heart that burns with a desire to see Jesus exalted. I love our holiness schools. I pray every day for them, but I would say, please, let's emphasize the Spirit's anointing. Let's emphasize the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Surely our great need is to preach Christ and him crucified for the preaching of the cross is the power of God. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA.